Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning. We're finishing out the book of Ruth as we look at Ruth chapter 4. Be in Ruth chapter 4, looking at that entire chapter. You've got to live for something bigger than yourself. It's graduation season, almost graduation season, and I bet you, you will hear that in one of the graduation speeches. You've got to live for something bigger than yourself. Do a quick search for that phrase, and it's gotten plenty of mileage in campaign speeches and graduation speeches. Anywhere you find a motivational speech, you'll likely find something like this phrase. You've got to live for something bigger than yourself. So Mark Zuckerberg has used it. Purpose is that sense that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. Maybe he would like you to be a part of Facebook, right? That we are needed, that we have something better ahead to work for. Purpose is what creates true happiness. Barack Obama has used it. It's only when you hitch your wagon to something larger than yourself that you realize your true potential and discover that the role you'll play in writing the next great chapter in the American story. Uh, Go to the other side of the aisle and John McCain has used it. Sacrifice for a greater cause than self-interest. If you sacrifice for a cause greater than self-interest and you invest your life in the imminence of that cause, then you will have purpose and joy. But there was also another who praised, quote, the individual's capacity to make sacrifices for the community, for his fellow men. And that is a phrase from Adolf Hitler. And so it turns out we need something more than just a vague, something bigger than ourselves. Unless that something bigger is tethered to and centered upon the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, then you will have a purpose that will not last, a purpose that will do no ultimate good, a purpose you will be frustrated with. And in the end, you will be disappointed and in despair. We'll spin our wheels pursuing some idol of country or of sports or of money or of something good like family when a a much greater purpose exists for us. See, when we find out that this life, the ordinariness of the day-to-day life is actually a part of a bigger story, that's when we find that we have true significance. And that bigger story is that there is a sovereign God, that He is at work in the world, and He's at work in the world for His glory and building His kingdom. When we find ourselves in that story, that bigger story, that's when we find significance. And that's when these little ordinary works that we do, like working with Rollsville Elementary School, partnering with them, showing loving kindness to them, when a little ordinary act of speaking a word of grace to your friend who is hurting, when you share the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus, Well, then that takes on new significance because you recognize God is at work in the midst of that and He is building His kingdom. He is enfolding people into that kingdom which will last forever, which will never end, which will never be frustrated. Well, I wonder what purpose you're serving, what what that something bigger is for you. Maybe you're being pulled in different directions. Maybe you have competing interests. 
Well, in the final chapter of Ruth, we come to find out that this story is more than just about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. We find out there's more to the story than we realize. It's as if the author pans out from this ordinary story. The camera lens gives us a wider view and we see that the story is about the glory of God and the kingdom of God and God making a king for his people over his kingdom. Let's look at our chapter together, Ruth chapter 4. Follow along as I read. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. The The day that you buy the field, oh, and he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife." to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who, built, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, 
Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Father, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. Use it to strengthen your kingdom and your people in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our story up to this point, we have seen the faith-driven initiative of Naomi and Ruth. They had been empty, but by the providence of God, by His sovereign hand, they had come back to the land of promise, and they had begun to be filled up. They had met Boaz, a relative and a man of great character. Remember, he was called a kinsman redeemer. He was a relative who would have the privilege and the responsibility to care for family members who had fallen on hard times. In the last chapter, we saw Ruth's audacious proposal as she presented herself to Boaz for marriage. And surprisingly, probably one of the the climaxes of the story is that Boaz agrees to do all that she will ask. He is willing to be her redeemer, her protector. Her provider. But last time we also found out there is a closer relative. And in this chapter, Boaz gives him the opportunity to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth if he is willing. So we see how it goes down. Boaz gathers the other redeemer, the town leaders at the city gate. This is where important transactions would take place. They have witnesses on how everything is done. And Boaz offers him the privilege of redeeming Naomi's land, which belonged to Elimelech. Our fears seem to be realized as this other redeemer says he will redeem it. We had grown attached to Boaz, a man of character, a man of worth. He was the one supposed to redeem Ruth. But Boaz has left out an important piece of information, almost like a salesman when he tries to get you to buy one thing, and then he tries to throw something else in the package, which will cost you a lot more. The land also belongs to Ruth. So, you would be purchasing her, you would be purchasing from her as well, and taking her as your wife. If you buy it from her, it means that you're also agreeing to marry her and preserve the line of her deceased husband, Malon. Maybe the other redeemer had figured His responsibility, if he bought back the land from Naomi, would just be to her. And since she was beyond marrying years, she was beyond childbearing years, there was no threat of other heirs to his own heirs. But if he had to marry Ruth, well, then that would mean he would have to pay for the land, which would then go to the offspring of Ruth and Malon and not his own children. Then he and his heirs would be out that money that they'd spent to redeem the land, and they wouldn't have anything to show for it. Boaz, however, will redeem the land and Ruth after all. He gives up, the other man gives up his right and gives it to Boaz. So before the witnesses, he purchases all that belongs to Elimelech, Naomi, Kilion, and Malon, and Ruth he has chosen to redeem as his wife. Why has he chosen to do this? He tells us why. He tells the witnesses why. To preserve the name of the dead in the inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers at the gate. 
By the way, did you notice as we read through chapter 4 how many references to names there were and how many names there were in the chapter? You have all these references to the name of Malon in verse 10 that his name might not be cut off. Also in verse 14 that the name of the Lord or the Redeemer would be renowned in Israel. The naming of Obed in verse 17. And then you have the names of all these descendants from Judah, from Perez, down to David. This chapter is filled with names. But this other Redeemer name remains nameless. And we might have seen his name in verse 1. Look back there. When Boaz calls him to come aside and sit down, your version may have translated the word as friend. But really, uh, a better way to see it would be uh, so-and-so, come here and sit down. He would have known his name. He's his relative, right? He knows who he is. Whatever your name is, come here and sit down with us. And let's talk about this. How would you like to be in a story and that was your name? (laughs) What's your name? Hey, I'm in this story. Did you see this? Oh, where's my name? The author refuses to name him because of his refusal to preserve the name of Malon by redeeming the land and Ruth. Boaz, however, is willing to show the steadfast love to his God and to his family by redeeming them. You see, what, what so-and-so realized is that redemption costs something. Redemption costs something. It would have cost, what's his name, money to buy the field and the loss of something that could have been given to his own heirs. You have to wonder, too, if he, if he saw the cost that it would be to him in his nationalistic pride in marrying a Moabite woman. But the point is, he's unwilling to pay the cost to redeem Ruth. But Boaz is willing, and God uses his willingness to pay the cost to provide a home for Ruth and Naomi. And as we'll see, so much more. Now, if we're not careful here, we'll make a mistake. We'll make a mistake of settling for a moralistic reading of this passage. What should we do? What's the moral of the story? What's the application of the story? Be more like Boaz and less like what's-his-name. How's that for an application? Then God will use you to carry out His plans and His promises for His glory. But if we're honest, we have to admit we're all too often much more like what's-his-name than we would be Boaz. Day in and day out, consider how you display an unwillingness to incur a cost to love God and love others. I think about it regularly. Now, I've stopped for my share of stranded passengers on the highway, but I don't always. And do you know why I don't always? Because I know it's going to cost me something. It might be dangerous. It's going to cost me could cost me as much as an hour or two, some effort. And sometimes that's not a cost I'm willing to pay. I'm unwilling to go that extra mile, to incur that cost, to love that stranded neighbor on the side of the road. You know, we're perfectly willing to show love if it doesn't count, cost us very much. Aren't you? I can give a few, few bucks to someone in need. I can give some loose change to them. Yeah, I'll hold the door for you. (laughs) That's a nice thing to do, a kind thing to do. It just doesn't cost me much, does it? Yeah, I'll show you love as as long as I'm not too inconvenienced. 
As long as I still have enough money to buy the things that I want and make me happy, well, then I can part with some of my money. As long as it doesn't take up too much of my, my time, as long as it doesn't take up too much of my family time or my me time, then I'm willing to help and show love. See, this unwillingness ultimately reveals idolatrous habits of our hearts. What does your unwillingness to incur a cost for the sake of others reveal about your own idolatries? So we see the answer can't be, be like Boaz. We've already failed that, and we continue to go in the same pattern of idolatrous habits. See, Boaz isn't something we have to try and live up to and attain. Boaz isn't so much our example here. Rather, he is a picture of our example the one who did incur a cost for us. He is what we could call a type of Christ. That is, he is a reflection which points ahead to the one true Redeemer who pays the penalty of his own life under the wrath of God because of his love for his people. He incurred a cost for you, brothers and sisters. What the author shows us in this last chapter is that this is not merely a story about Naomi and Ruth or Boaz or what's-his-name, This is a story about all God's people. For these seemingly ordinary events in this story turn out to be vital steps in the course of God fulfilling His promises to His people of an offspring who would crush the head of a serpent and of a king who would faithfully rule over God's people forever. The story is ultimately about the Messiah who would come and redeem His people as his own possession. And so for the rest of our time, I want us to consider Ruth's connection, the book of Ruth's connection to these promises of particularly an offspring and a king. Look at the blessing of the people at the gate in verses 11 and 12. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The women use this term and point to ultimately the offspring as the building up of the house of Israel, as the, as the one making the name renowned in Israel. And by... Their use of this word, we are reminded of the ancient promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Turn your Bibles and look at Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. You'll remember after the sin of Adam and Eve, God speaks a word of hope, a word of gospel, of good news. He speaks these words as he speaks to the serpent. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If we go on to Genesis 4, chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
You have to wonder if it was her hope that this was the offspring. This was the seed who had crushed the head of the serpent. But Cain didn't do that. Instead, he crushed the head of his own brother. And so Adam and Eve's hope turned to despair. Generations passed, but there was still no sign of the seed, the offspring, who would conquer God's enemies. The book of Ruth then proves to be a link of hope for God's people. Generations have passed, but God is still working. He has not forsaken his promise of an offspring from Adam and Eve who will triumph over his enemies and the greatest enemy of all, the serpent. The rejoicing of the women and of Naomi then is a picture of the joy God's people have in the coming true offspring of Adam, Jesus Christ. Look at their rejoicing. Verses 14 and 15. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Did you catch that? Now, Boaz is no longer the redeemer. So-and-so is no longer the redeemer. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, has given birth to him, the redeemer. The offspring is the redeemer. And I would say not ultimately Obed, but further down the line, Obed's great, 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 great grandson, Christ. It is this offspring who restores life to his people and nourishes us by his steadfast love. But God is not only at work in fulfilling his promise to Adam and Eve of an offspring, he is also fulfilling his promise to Judah. We find out more about the identity of this offspring by other connections that the author makes. So notice the link that the author makes in verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Do you remember that story? We covered it not too long ago as we preached through Genesis. We read about them in Genesis 38. You'll remember that Judah neglected his responsibility to provide a husband for Tamar from his youngest son. So it was a a story similarly concerned with Levirate marriage. Um, Tamar came up with an audacious plan, just like Naomi and, and Ruth did, to get what she needed and deserved. Long story short, Tamar ended up tricking Judah into providing an offspring for her. And Perez was one of the twins born to Judah and Tamar. But it really gets interesting in Genesis 49. Turn there in your Bibles as well. Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons before he dies. And look at his blessing on Judah, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. Or, your, your version or your note might also set, say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Well, we, we should ask then, who, to whom does the scepter and the ruler's staff belong? We could see it as David himself. That's how the book of Ruth ends, right? In verse 17, Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David, and we see the generations of Perez, which ends with the name David. Remember, this is during the time of the judges in Israel when there was no king in Israel. But, you see, there actually was a king. The first name in the book of Ruth is Elimelech, which literally means, my God is king. And the last name of the book is David, Israel's greatest king. But ultimately, we can't say that David is the one to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belong. The book of Ruth shows how the events in this story have served as an important link in the royal line from Judah to David. However, the book may end with David, but the story doesn't end with David. Right? There is a sequel to the story. David is not the fulfillment of the promise to Judah ultimately, for the scepter and ruler's staff ultimately belong to God himself, the king over all. So the book of Ruth then is about this offspring who will crush the head of the serpent, who is also a king, who is also who is also divine. I have a couple more places for you to turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. There we read, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So how is the Christ the son of David? Well, for one, he is a human and in the lineage of David. But for two, he is divine. The greatest of all the kings of Israel calls him Lord. The Lord who will triumph over his enemies. So the last place we'll turn is to Matthew 1.1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And look down to verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And look down to verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of of David the king, and then skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Here then is the story of Ruth. Here's the message of the book of Ruth, the making of a king. But not just any king. In the providence and sovereignty of God, Boaz and Ruth meet and produce an offspring through which God is fulfilling his promises to Adam and Eve, and to Judah. Jesus Christ is the offspring 
who crushes the head of the serpent by his perfect life and obedience to God and his sacrificial death for sinners. Jesus Christ is the true king who rules in righteousness over his people and is a refuge to all who trust in him. So the book of Ruth, we know all the Bible is about Christ. So is the book of Ruth. It's about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Not about how we can somehow find our place in his story, but how he has made us a part of his story in Christ Jesus. It's about the work of God in sovereignly fulfilling his plan, which centers upon this person who is fully divine and fully human, Jesus Christ for sinners. Well then, what are some lessons we might draw from this beautiful story? God always keeps his promises. He is faithful. God is sovereignly working his will and his plans cannot be thwarted. And God's plans center in on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God has redeemed his people He's given them a land. He has made them a part of this family. He has given us a seat at his table. And ultimately, there is nothing in this life or in this world you need besides him. He has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And God is the king who will triumph over all his enemies. Christ is the offspring who paid the cost of your freedom. The serpent bruised his heel when he died on the cross. For us, but he rose from the dead, and the Spirit now indwells those of us who are in Christ, bearing witness that we are citizens of this kingdom, that we are subjects of this king, more than that, that we are his children, his sons and daughters, heirs of the kingdom. And all of this results in the glory of God, for we see his sovereignty on display. We see his wisdom on display, his loving kindness, his mercy and grace, his compassion to sinners. And so we say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Father, would you take your word and minister to us by it. Restore life to us. Remind us of this grand story of redemption that you have woven throughout history and time. For your glory and for the good of your people that we might not be caught up in the little stories of this world, the little purposes of this world, but that we might be caught up in this story, in your story. That we might live in light of your coming kingdom. That we might live here in this present age as citizens of your everlasting kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.